What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and today I am on my own. I wanted to do this one on my own. Uh, we are still doing our Ghostbusters retrospective. I sort of full gamut of Ghostbusters fandom and the Ghostbusters movies. We've talked Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2 and Ghostbusters 2016. And today I'm going to be talking about my thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife. I went to see the film um, and there's going to be spoilers. I'm going to just sort of put that at the front. There are going to be spoilers as I talk about this film. So if you haven't seen it yet and you don't want to be spoiled, I'm sorry. You know, firstly, what the fuck are you doing? Get your ass out there and see it. Secondly, um, pause now, come back later when you've seen it. Have you gone? Good. Or are you back? Either way, we're going to be talking Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, obviously I've been running up to this. I've been um, watching all of the films. And I love, I actually really enjoy all the films. And so Go back to the podcast to look and to listen to uh, my thoughts on those films. And so going into this, I had seen pretty much all the trailers. Uh, I had left out a couple of the, the sort of smaller bits and pieces. So I wanted to go in. I hadn't seen that last trailer, that last sort of one minute trailer. I didn't, really didn't want to go in with much at all. Um, so what did I think of this film? Uh, up, up front, I have to say, I really enjoyed this film. I really did. It made me smile, it made me cry, it made me laugh. Uh, I think there's a lot of good in this film. It's not perfect by any stretch. Definitely not perfect, um, but a lot of good. Um, and the first thing is, there's, there's a couple of things. It goes back to uh, talking with Paul Gannon, uh, the other one of the past episodes, and he said two things. Firstly, there's a, there, there is Ghostbusters. There is the Ghostbusters movie, and then there are Ghostbusters movies, like you know, the or the movies in which Ghostbusters are in. I get that. And that, this is what this is. It's an, it's an evolution. However, the other thing I thought about is no Ghostbusters movie has ever been the same. Like, you know, um, there's this idea of recapturing the uh, tone or attitude or whatever of the first film. It doesn't exist. This, 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 that was lightning in a bottle. You know, you got people at a certain age uh, and certain agendas and all kinds of bits and pieces all came together in a certain pressure cooker and created possibly one of my favourite films. Brilliant. Ghostbusters 2 is a very different film. It's influenced by different things. It's coming as a, as a bit more of a family film. It's influenced by things like the real Ghostbusters and uh, merchandising and looking for to sell toys and so on and so forth. So it has a slightly different slant. Okay, then you get 2016. 2016 is a very different slant. Paul Fire coming in to do something different. So it's this thing of like... Don't be surprised if this film is something different. Like, of course, it should be something different. Like, it's a different age. This film, to me, though, still captured that 80s um, feel, that 80s sort of tone, but not of Ghostbusters. Um, it has Ghostbusters in it, and it has a Ghostbustery feel, but 
it felt like, and Stranger Things is a fair comparison I've heard that people make, I would still actually say there's more a feel of Goonies, uh, the Monster Squad, um, uh, The Gate, you know, those sorts of films, 80s kid horror films or kid sort of adventure films um that sort of tapped into that then this this film is about kids like it's an amblin movie like this feels like, a, like an 80s amblin movie like a spielberg movie and paul gannon got that spot on and i wasn't sure if it's what i wanted but it's what i got and actually i kind of enjoyed that feel like this felt like a film and i've heard people saying this on social media but it felt like a film that you can take your kids to you know there's that thing of like yeah do, do i want to see a bunch of grumpy old men chasing ghosts I would, you know, I would love to see the original cast on screen. We'll get to that, but I don't want them all the time because they'll be just creaky and old, and you know they clearly don't want to do it. Fine, bring me a new cast. This is a great way of rebooting. Does it mean this cast has to carry on? No, like there's stories to be told in different ways. But I honestly think that there is a. Uh, this is a really good jumping on point, uh, and if they've. They've manufactured it to be both a jumping on point and a nostalgia trip at the same time. And I think they did it perfectly. For the most part, there's a couple of quibbles I do have. So yeah, I've really enjoyed this film. It's an Amblin film. Um, and, and I like those films. I love Monster Squad. I love Goonies still. Like they, they play a big part in my childhood uh, and still films I enjoy today. The story, though. So let's get to the story. This idea, it is a little contrived um, in places. Um, this idea of, you know, it has these things, but, you know, this idea of Egon giving up with the Ghostbusters in the 90s and running off um, to sort of live in this sort of small town in the, in the arse end of nowhere. It doesn't... It's a bit like... Um, <laughs> he, he went crazy or something. Like, he was, you know, he was driven by this thing of, like, the end of the world. When you see the previous films, uh, one and two... Like, that's not the Egon. Like, Egon did daft things. Like, you know, he tried to drill a hole in his head or, um, you know, there's other things. But that, that this idea of him running off and leaving the Ghostbusters, especially even Ray, does not compute. It just doesn't seem to be in character. Now, we don't know what happens after Ghostbusters 2. There's a, there's a stretch in, you know, fine. But um, it just felt... It felt out of character, but we'll get to that. But it's, it's fine. I'm happy to accept it, and maybe it'll be padded out in a you know, uh, in whatever. I'd love I'd love them to have done a novelization of this. They won't. They haven't, which is a real shame because all the other films have got novelizations. But there you go. Um. But yeah, it just felt weird. But it still kicks off this idea. You know, you're going out from from the, you're leaving the city. You know, all the other films have been based in the city and going to this small town. That I like. Again, you're bringing this film back into that sort of idea of small town America, you know, this idea of sort of like picturesque Americana, like a diner forms a, a large part of the story in this film. Um, this idea of like wooden farmhouses and large open fields and a mine. All this feels sort of, again, tapping into um, almost Stephen King ideas, like, you know, this idea of sort of middle America and sort of like, you know, stuff happening there rather than the big cities. I kind of like that. It makes a lot of sense. And so to see it in that in that respect, um, I like the idea of this story being centered in a small town. Uh, you can, you know, there's only so many times you can have it in New York, and if you're going to have these kids as the cast, which we'll get to in a second, like then you need it somewhere else. 
you can't have a New York cop stopping a bunch of kids and sort of shooting them because that's what would happen. Um, but yeah, so having a small town, I like. Having it then tied into Evo Shandor, I absolutely love because it makes complete sense. Um, there's obviously nuggets dropped about Evo Shandor in the first film. And even as a kid, I always, well, not as a kid maybe, but as an adult, as I've grown up and I've watched the film, I've had questions about Evo Shandor. It's like, where did he come from? Like, you know, they make, they say in the first film how he made these, these, the girders for the, for the building out in, out of this selenium, this, this material. And there's obviously the question, where the hell did he get them from then? Like, if he, if he was, you know, rich enough and powerful enough to build this building and construct it, like, where was he getting his cash from? How was he doing this? And this film goes back and it's like, oh, yeah, no, like, this is the kind of thing that happened. Like, they set up a town around a mine and then the town sort of grows from there. I literally live in a village. The village I live in existed solely to support miners 200, 300 years ago. And it's still here. Like, the mine is long gone, probably in the last sort of 50 years, 60 years. But the village remains, and that's one of those things, the same thing. Like, you know, this thing, the town was built by Shandor and then existed beyond him. And it, So that felt real to me as well, which was interesting. A town sort of hanging on through different things, just existing in this, exer- uh, this existence. And one of the characters is Celeste O'Connor. She plays Lucky. Um, she actually says, like, oh, yeah, I'm fourth generation. Uh, you know, Somerville, like, it's... That, and that felt, you know, like, yeah, families are trapped in this thing that you get these families that do sort of exist in these these sort of like perpetual existences in small towns. So, excuse me, uh, yeah, it felt cool. So I like the I like the atmosphere. I'm liking the environment, and I'm liking that it's a continuation of Nuggets dropped in the first film. So yeah, I'm enjoying, it. and the way they found it's found like this idea of sort of like you know. Um, so I saw someone. This is the thing is, going to go to the part, but I like the small little nuggets in the house, like the uh, Egon's farmhouse, the dirt farmer. So but there's all these little moments. However, someone pointed out to me that not always a lot like Poltergeist again, an influ- uh, uh, Steven Spielberg influence film, and I definitely feel that there's those influences in this, and that's not a bad thing. Like you know, uh, when you find out that the house is haunted by the ghost of Egon. And you, you know, it plays chess, it moves light bulbs, it directs. It the ghost of Egon, not appearing, not materializing, but directing um McKenna Grace's character, um Phoebe to all these different things around the table, around the house, like directing her through the house, using the, the PKE meter. Like I loved that. Like that to me felt like a great sort of like oh, that's a kind of scene that you would have seen in the eighties. Like that's a film I would that's the thing I would have seen in a film like Monster Squad. Like, you know, you know, it's not huge special effects. Just you could easily do it with practical effects. But it felt like there was some humour to it. You know, it was it felt kind of like thanking a light, a light shade. Or acknowledging what it's showing you. So I, I thought all that was actually, again, really good. Um, and, and so the, this idea of it building up and these kids um, taking on the Ghostbusters, it felt sort of natural. Like, there's things in this film that are contrived, you know. <laughs> finding certain things, getting away with things like you have to sort of accept that the parents are sort of what I like to call uh, like movie neglectful, you know, like they're just, it's, it's a good job that the parents aren't around for this, but they, you know, they're, they're verging on, <laughs> are verging on negligence, but it's a good job. So it's fine. It's, it's sort of atypical of certain types of films, especially what films with kids when they go off to do these things. Um, 
and yeah, they've aged them a specific kind of uh, kind of age. But yeah, there's things like you know them getting away with. Um, well, no, again, finding a field in the middle of the arse end of nowhere and, again, just blasting things. Like, I've done that. I've got I, I had an air pistol and an air rifle when I was a kid and you could go out and do that kind of thing. So, again, it sort of makes sense. I'm, I'm happy to go with that. Um, It felt like Scooby-Doo-ish. It's the kids... It, this, this thing of kids on the grand adventure, again, you know, you, you sort of can wear thin as an adult and there are moments in this story where you're like, OK, you know, like a, kids taking on a god towards the end feels a little um beyond the pale but because of everything i've enjoyed up to that point everything that's built up and i've I've gone on with these characters i'm enjoying the characters i'm enjoying the sort of the environment and the atmosphere i just go with it at the end and it's it's good to do that because the finale of this film is a bit silly um and there's several moments that sort of are a little bit heavy-handed um and weirdly because it's been filmed um on location in a number of ways like you know the, the the whole town of Somerville is clearly you know it's all filmed outside and the sets are great and outside the house has got filled with you know this light and it feels like a real house so it's a real shame that when Zool appears at the end sorry Gozer sorry when Gozer appears at the end um and it's all, it all pushes through the rock and then Ecto-1 you know, they go in Ecto-1 and they're sort of like to take her on or to sort of like have them chase or whatever the finale, it sort of shifts, and that bit really feels like a soundstage, <laughs> like really badly. Um, as does the proper finale where they go back to the, the the farmhouse, and there's shots, and it's this weird thing of there are di- there are sort of like mid range shots, and you can see it's a farm, and it looks very much sort of like on location, and then it goes back to um, the action, and it feels like a soundstage. I'm not sure why. There's like a lighting or there's just, there's just something. The way it's done feels, and I I understand why it was filmed on a soundstage. Like you know, there's some practical effects, technical effects. I'm sure there were sort of limitations of things they had to do that could only be done on a soundstage. Not a problem. Fine, but I don't know. It just felt like it. That made it feel a little cheap towards the end, um, and that sort of bugged me a little. Not enough to put me off. Do me right. It's a very it's a minor nitpick, but it it was it was noticeable that. You know, Gozer on their on her throne, its throne, um, looks like a soundstage. In fact, it looked at one. There are two shots in particular that when McKenna Grace is working, when Phoebe's walking up, that it looks so much like a soundstage, or so staged that it actually reminded me of um, a ride or like a, a show you would see at like Disneyland or Universal Studios. It looked that um, crap. I don't know why, it really took me out of the film at one point. I, I reconciled it, it's not a problem. So the story's good, I like the story, it works well for me. Um, and then you get sort of like the payoff. So I want let's sort of talk about, we'll talk about that in a little bit actually, because I want to talk about the cast. But the payoff, obviously the, the original cast turn up um, in an, in a enough of a cameo that I like. It was... At first, I was like, literally, as we're getting close to the end of the finale, like when they go and f- confront Goza, I was like, okay, are the original four, oh, not the original four, but the original, you know, are the three remaining going to turn up at this point? Like, I'm counting down, like, you know. And so they only get like a minor, um, they only get like a minor cameo. Like, they, they, like, they partake in the action, but, you know, it's, um, it isn't, a, it isn't like a meaty, meaty cameo. But, 
on re- on in, in, on reflection, it's enough because it, it's not about them. Um, and that's actually a really good point to make is that this film isn't about them. Like you've spent this whole film following these kids and the families around them. And so to see if, if if the whole third act had then just been taken up by the original Ghostbusters coming back, I think I would have felt con- conflicted about that because um, they'd have just taken over. And I'm like, hang on, what about the, their story? And so it's just enough that they come in to sort of like to add, but the, the day is saved by, by the kids. And so I like that. I appreciate that. So actually, I kind of like it. And let's be fair, like these guys are in their 70s. You know, they're pretty sure they got paid well for this and enjoyed sort of catching up. Um, and Ernie Hudson, uh, Winston Zedmore gets his due finally, sort of like this idea of like he went off, got himself educated, and became a finance magnate. So we'll get onto this thing about me and my predictions for the future. But um, I like that. I like that as a as a point that you know he actually went off and made good and became sort of the most successful of the four. So, but there is another cameo, uh, and that's the 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 ghost of Egon coming back. And obviously you knew it was there because the ghost of Egon... It's, it's, it's clear that there's a ghost of Egon in the house, like directing McKenna Grace to uh, fix the proton packs and the, the traps and the PKE and do all the other bits and pieces. Um, and it even sort of helps... It unknowingly helps um, uh, the Finn Wolfhart character fix the car. So I, I, it's there. Like I was like, okay, it's going to happen. Is the, is is the, Are they going to have a CGI... Like, a force ghost of Egon. Is that what they're going to have? And again, as the film progressed, in my head, I was a little conflicted, thinking, I don't know if I want that to happen. I don't know. Um, But then when it does happen, and the way it's done, and the CGI on it, the the mocap and sort of the deep fake, whatever you want to call it, is so fucking good. It's, it's, It's so good. The moment like McKenna's sort of like, you know, she's fighting off Gozer, she's got the the, the proton wand, is, is firing off, and then this hand appears to help steady her and um, you know, keep her steady and it pans round. I'm fucking getting I'm getting choked. About it pans round and Egon is there supporting his granddaughter, and it's just brilliant. And it looks spot on. It looks like an aging um Harold Ramis. Uh, you know they don't have him speak like he you know he he hasn't m- morphed into one of these other cartoony ghosts. Um, he looks like Harold Ramis, and I think it works in that thing of look. You know it doesn't have to look spot on photorealistic, so the, it sort of bypasses the the nature of the of the uncanny valley because he's a force ghost, so he looks fine. <laughs> it looks good. Um, and so, you know, they give him a bit of uh, physicality. He's able to help uh, and do stuff. And so I absolutely loved the fact that you do get all four of them stood up together. And, you know, you get Harold. And this felt like a good send-up. It honoured Harold Ramis and, and Egon. So I thought that cameo and, and that appearance at the end was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And, and it meant a lot to a lot of fans. And it meant a lot to me. And I appreciate them doing that in a tasteful way. So let's quickly talk about the cast, um, and 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 just run through them really. So they've got the kids: uh, McKenna Grace, Finn Wolfhart, uh, Logan Kim, uh, and Celeste O'Connor as the four sort of main kids. And um, I would say, weirdly, the older two of the two kids, Celeste O'Connor and Finn Wolfhart, are so much of a muchness when it comes to sort of like child 
you know, youth actors or young adult teenage actors, they are perfectly serviceable. Um, I would happily watch them in a sequel. They are fine. Um, Celeste O'Connor in particular is, you know, she has uh, a confidence. She seems fine on screen. She sort of interacts with everyone. Fine is all I can say, really. Like, there's nothing bad. There's just no pizzazz. There's no zing there. She just... Um, they tried to sort of have her as this sort of like she's got a bit of an edge, but she's cheeky. Like you know, when when um, uh, tr- uh, Trevor Trevor yeah goes into prison or into the cell, and she's sort of like you know oh, you gotta hide this quick quick quick. Like she they're trying to play it. She's like pranky or she's got an edge or whatever. Like, and I never quite believe it. Like it never sort of comes across as being legit. Like it feels forced, and so. That was a little disappointing, and it, it it stays that way sort of throughout the rest of the film. That she's like, um, she feels like a character. She's the she's the one that she feels most like a character. Where they've gone, oh right, we've got to have sort of um, you know uh, a character be this this thing, you know, tick these boxes. And I feel that she gets a, a few things lumped on her, which become a bit clunky, which is unfortunate because there are other scenes where she's actually pretty good. Um, but there's others where it feels clunky. Uh, she gets a good ending. Like her, her to be fair, her her stuff at the end is good. Like she gets possessed, and they sort of they they work with all that stuff in really well. So that's not to say she, you know she she's not that she doesn't get uh, her due. And again, like with Finn Wolfhard, like I've seen him, he's done Stranger Things and all this other stuff. Like so, I often feel like yeah, he's fine, he's good. You know, I've liked him in things, and I like him in this. He's fine. And again, it's like he he just doesn't have. Um, he feels awkward and gangly as a teenager, and that's fine. I expect that. But then they also want him to have like certain other traits that sort of like never quite land. You know, like they want him to be sort of a little bit more confident stuff, and it's uh, or a bit snarky. And it seems like they're never quite sure. Do they want him to become? Do they want him to be the Bill Murray? You know, is he supposed to be sort of like the Bill Murray character kind of of this piece? And so I'm curious as to sort of like you know how how they put that together. Um, I'm working through in my sort of like sort of how much I like them, but again, like Logan Kim as podcast. Firstly, any character that sort of acknowledges themselves as a podcast and calls himself podcast is all right by me. Um, but he's cool. That kid is really funny. Like you know, he's got some great comedy timing. He's charismatic. He's charming. Um, he never quite, you know, it's sort of with kids actors, there's that sort of fine line of shifting from sort of like charmingly cheeky to irritating, you know, it's easier to cross that line in real life than it is in film. Um, but he sort of, he manages to sort of like tread that board of being irritating without being irritating. Like, you know, he, he can be a little annoying, but he's never, it's never that I don't want him on screen. I actually really enjoy his presence. And he is fun. He's funny. And um, it's clear that he's doing well. The only time again that I find um, he not gets wasted, but like, you know, gets given something. It's, it's the finale. The finale sort of generally works, but gets populated by moments that start to bug me. And his moment when he's attacking the uh, mini puffs with the zapper. Uh, and they're all exploding on him to cover him in, in marshmallow. 
it feels that that was one of those we'll get into fan service in a little bit but that felt like one of those moments where i was just like oh this, this doesn't work like this thing just feels stupid but then i saw kids laughing at it so i was like okay this isn't for me but it it felt disney that that moment felt like a disney show cw show it felt like a sitcom moment and it felt it didn't feel authentic um and I, felt, I was hoping that the mini puffs would be a bit more of a threat, so you know they'd, they'd actually play a part in doing some more damage, or at least give being a risk to him. Um, and the final one is McKenna Grace, and I will say this: I cannot say enough good things about McKenna Grace. She's an absolutely f- fabulous little actress, and that's how I really patronise him. But before I saw this, um, I've seen him in a couple of things. I can't remember, but I saw. Um, recently uh handmaid's tale season three and spoilers for that as well but she appears as a character as a wife a young wife and it's clear that she has been sexually abused by this husband character like she was forced into this thing um and then she obviously you know her rage and her anger comes through in that and she does some uh things in that that are quite you know shocking but she was really good in that and i was like oh wow yeah you are great but like you know so I'm seeing you as this sort of like serious and dark, damaged character. You know, is that is that what you, you're brought in to do? I haven't seen Little Women, so I couldn't make that comparison. But then I watch her in this, and I think she's funny, she's charming. Um, you know, she's playing a completely different character. She's She's got, like, she chops. She's fantastic. Like, she carries a lot of this film, and her charisma does a lot of the work. Like, she, on screen, like, you know, she she knows how to play things and when to sort of pull back on certain jokes and that sort of thing. I think she's just very skilled. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we are seeing the start of, um, a long career for McKenna Grace. And, you know, this is one of those actresses that often you see these and someone pointed out to me about kid actors don't usually have a success rate, but I'm hoping that we'll see her in the line. And she'll be like, you know, here's her getting her Oscar or whatever. Like she's, she's fantastic. So well done to, for taking on this role. Uh, and you would see you see her as the um, she is the the progeny of, of Egon Spengler, and she's fantastic. So the the cast are really good for the kids; they work well. And again, I'm thinking back to like Goonies and Monster Squad, and it ticks those boxes as well. You know, sort of like the nerds, boom boom, cool kids, yeah, boom boom, sort of like the outsider coming in to join the group, boom, yeah, all that was there. Um. And so, yeah, I mean, if you seriously go back and watch Goonies or Monster Squad or or even like the Castle, the Castle of the Gate, or uh, there's a couple of others. Um, I can't think of them, but like, there's a formula for who, what, you know, the, the different characters that sit within these groups. So it works for me. I, it 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 really worked. The adult characters, um, mainly sort of focusing on Paul Rudd and Carrie Coon, um, slightly more mixed bag. Uh, there's a definite sort of reliance on Paul Rudd being Paul Rudd uh, at times, and I often like that. And I enjoy it. Um, however, in this, it's sort of there's a couple of occasions where it's a little bit too Paul Rudd. You know, it's a bit ruddy much, if I'm honest. Um, it's fine. Again, it's fine. It's just I think maybe I've seen you know seen a lot of him. There's a bit of saturation, but he's he's perfectly serviceable and funny. And there's some he still has charisma and charm and stuff. I'm I'm happy to have him on screen. Um, but it's again, it's when you get to that third act. I I struggle with the third act because when he then takes on the the sort of like the lowest totally the Vince Clotho possession, 
uh, and everything like that. From that sort of point on, it feels a little clunky. And I think that's the same for Carrie Coon. Carrie Coon, again, feels like she's perfectly acceptable. She's sort of like the put-upon mum. I completely understand where she's coming from uh, for a large portion of this, why she hates Egon, why she hates science, and she has all this stuff, and why she struggles with the kids. It all sort of works. And then it's sort of like that third act starts to feel a little clunky. Like Her possession makes sense. But then she's sort of possessed by Zul, um is fine you know they sort of have this thing but then when she's not possessed by Zul but she's still in the sort of like the Zul clothing and stuff like if it, she feels like a, a, a fifth yeah like a, a fifth wheel on this situation and then oh we've got to give her things to do and you know where she's been sort of like a certain character for the majority of the film there's just moments in that family when they're just not entirely sure how to use her um, and it, again, it's most it's it's this thing of fine, like she is fine, but there's others excelling. Um, but that third act is definitely saved by others. Like again, like the plan is good. Um, you know, McKenna Grace is fantastic in it. Um, in fact, she's the bit that saves it. Like she is the, the center of that finale, and she's fantastic. And then obviously, when the the original guys come in, it sort of elevates it again for me. But that that finale feels a little clunky. Uh, around the farm, when they go back to the dirt farm, and this idea of, of capturing um, Gozer in all these traps. Um, and again, the, the, the depiction of Gozer in this is fantastic. Like, it really feels like a continuation of 1984. Love it. Uh, I love the fact that the suit is now like this sort of like weird mesh flesh part of her, um, as well as the fact that when she doesn't, you know, they've now confirmed that she needs to have this combination of Zool and Vince Clotho to, to become whole so when one of those is trapped and taken away she becomes this sort of like uh wraith uh character stalking across the ground it looks fantastic like it's great character design i absolutely love that so i loved all that exposition all that exposition stuff so that all that is great um it's just the fact that that's it and even having it on the farm i was quite excited to have this thing on the farm it sort of felt like a good um bringing it down to, to earth kind of thing um but it just there's something about that finale that just feels clunky, um, and it's, it's hard to put my finger on it. And I may have to reflect on it for a little bit longer. I'm definitely going to see this film again. But yeah, that third act, that finale, just feels like a little bit clunky. The third act in itself as a whole, fine. It's just that finale, the grand finale, feels a little clunky, and and not quite put together properly. Um, I, I think he's. <laughs> I'm trying, in my head, I it's the pacing of like you know we talk about the choreography. It's what I'm trying to think of in my head. You know, you think of like the choreography of a big fight. So that, you know, you think about a, an action movie or a sword and sandals kind of movie. Like there's going to be the choreography, the fight choreography of like you know, um, two guys atop of a hill, sword fighting, clang clang clang, or like even like you know Star Wars. You have the choreography of the moments, you know, where they'll go up and down and round and they'll fight up the stairs or they'll fight through this or whatever. Car chase is a similar thing. There's that choreography. You know, they're going to do it here, they're going to go here and these things are going to interact. That's what a finale has. And it may, maybe this finale just, like, it felt very much like there was a lot going on, but not a great deal of it mattered. Like, it was all sort of like, okay, we've got to do... Here's the plan. Here's what we've got to do. We've got to get teased... We've got to tempt Gozer back to the farm so we can actually um, trap her in in these masses of traps in the ground. 
Uh, I mean, this is how we're going to do it. All right, fine, brilliant, love that, get on with it. And then when it happens, it's a bit sort of like, you know, aha, we're going to sort of spring all these traps on her, like the door bursts open and Lucky comes out and starts shooting it. And then the side of uh, Ecto bursts open and they use the gunner seat and they're trying to do that. And it's all like, it feels um, stagey. Is, is the best way I can put it. It feels very stagey. It doesn't feel like... It feels like a plan, but the choreography, the way it's been put into practice, feels stagey um, and doesn't sort of have the 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 punchiness that I think it needed um, until, you know, until sort of like... If they feel like they're all down and that's when the, the guys come in and it sort of like gets lifted up again. And that's not to say that, you know, oh, I'm waiting for the guys to come back and the original Ghostbusters saved it. They sort of do, but it just it almost feels like that right we're gonna have this kid's plan is gonna go awry to be saved because it feels so stagey but it's sort of it they've done other things that haven't done that and so it sort of feels a bit and then it feels forced so anyway, that's the thing i'll say is is you know the cast are really is you know a good to fine or ex sorry fine good to excellent uh, in my opinion so enjoyed that the other thing I'm sort of just thinking about before we sort of start to roll is this idea of nostalgia. Um, th- there was a big thing about this and saying whether or not this taps into too much nostalgia. And I've heard both sides of the argument online and in reviews, too much, too little, or just enough, whatever. In my opinion, it's one of those that this film has some fantastic, subtle nostalgia that if you've never seen the original film, doesn't matter. In the background, you know, if you go when they get into the house, there's the uh, pile of uh, symmetrically stacked books. No one stacked books like that. Um, you know, you get these other things, or when they're going around the spores, molds, and fungus, or um, all these little bits and pieces. I can't think of one, but there's even like the pictures in the background. Apparently, even the toaster from Ghostbusters Two is in the um, is in the kitchen. There's bits and pieces like that. Like as you go through this film, there are lots of little Easter eggs to to sort of pick out. Um, and that's great. There's also ones are in your face a little bit, and that's the problem. Um, and the biggest problem for me is the music uh, and the use of the original Elmer Bernstein score is a heavy-handed mess, in my opinion. One of the things that, that becomes evident, and one, a good score, a good score is used to score a scene. So, you know, when it's being written, like, you know, the, the, the composer will watch the film, he'll have this thing in his head, and then he'll write it, and then they'll record it as they're watching it. So they'll have those inflections and everything. So that when you are listening back to the score, if, you, if you've ever had a film, and there's some great examples of this, but if you ever sort of, like, if you've watched a film and you love a film, and then you listen to the score, you will hear certain inflections and little notes, even the minor things, not just... Uh, the you know there's big rousing moments, but those little things that you can go, oh that's this scene. I can picture it in my head. It's really evoking that emotion in me, and that's what it's there for. And the Elmer Bernstein Elmer Bernstein score was written to score the 1984 Ghostbusters. And so, you know, when you take a legacy score like that and you want to blend it into your film, and let's talk about blending, right? Others have done it. Uh, Danny Elfman did it particularly well with. Uh, like the Superman, the John Williams, and his own, his own Batman score into like the Justice League, where he sort of like blends them in, so you hear those notes or whatever. Uh, Star Wars did it often. Did it? John Williams does it fantastically with blending in old score to sort of you know Luke's theme or the Empire March or whatever Imperial March. 
blends them in to sort of use them again to let you know, oh, this is this character, or like, oh, no, they live in the same thing, they do this, they whatever. Using it very, very well. Legacy sequels, or legacy sequels, some have been fantastic. This, it's literally just like, press button, CD play, and it plays a sort of music that seems completely from, you know, a completely different part of the film. Like, there's the moment they're chasing down Chomper, uh, or Muncher, what it was called, the little, the blue alien, uh, alien, fuck it, the blue ghost. And they just start playing in that chase sections of the, the Bernstein score for when they're chasing down, um, from when they're chasing down Slimer in the first film. And it's just like, it's, it's this little, like someone coming out with a rubber sledgehammer and just smashing you in the face and being like, remember this? <laughs> this is when this happened. Yeah, I get that. But blend it in. Don't just turn on the score. Uh, and it happens again and again. And it, it, it took me out of the film. It really was a problem for me by the end of the film. It's just like, the score for this film is crap. Lazy is what it is. There's moments where it's fine, it's good. But the the, the use of the, the ghost, the original Elm uh, Bernstein score, look, is crap. And it's really badly done. Um, and it, I found it irritating. Um, so, yeah, it's too heavy-handed. So that's, that was one big thing. The, the, the nostalgia is good. Um, you know the fact it's Ecto One, not Ecto One A. Uh, the fact that it, like the proton packs look great. Uh, the the use of the new stuff like the little RC uh, trap was a great little thing. The gunner seat, all those bits and pieces, and you know using the suits um, and all that other stuff. And then obviously the return of the original Ghostbusters and stuff. Fantastic. I think the nostalgia sort of visually is great. Is really really good. It's just, it's just thingy. Um, you know, even like great moments like spoilers, um, since full of spoilers, when Goza finally returns, they find obviously Evo Shandor has sort of like uh, embalmed him, have done something, I don't know, cast a spell to be sort of interred until Goza returns. And then when he does, he's like, you know, mistress, and she just comes and just rips him in half. I love that scene. Like, that was a great little uh, moment that made me chuckle that was just sort of like, you know, not just been harkening back to the first film, but it was a good sort of like, you know, this thing of like the end, the real end of Evo Shandor. Um, so, anyway, yeah, so that's where I was at with that. So, the nostalgia works on screen, the music is a real mistake. Um, so, that's the film for me in, in many respects. I think I've talked about it a lot. Though. So, there's two things I want to talk about. Where does this rank with the other films? So, I, I did really, really love this film. I will definitely be buying this film. It will be, and it will be in rotation. Um, to me, I th- I think this just nudges out Ghost- Ghostbusters two. Now I love Ghostbusters two, um, but this I have problems with some of that film as well. It's a really good fun film. And there's elements of laziness in that film as well, but this film has because of that ambling sort of feel. That's sort of, certain things in it that I really enjoy. I think this film just nudges out Ghostbusters two. So for me. Um, and I love all four of these. Like it's literally sort of in some cases like you know a Nat's wing, a Nat's bollock between the th- between them. But it goes Ghostbusters twenty sixteen is is in at number four. And again, a good film. Enjoyed it. It's got the good humour. Uh, bit patchy. Overstays its welcome in some parts, and the cast. Um, apart, you know, it's it's basically held together by um, Leslie Jones and um, Kate McKinnon. Uh, then you'll get Ghostbusters 2, uh, which I, I, do, I still love. I think it's fantastic. Uh, underuses only Hudson. 
uh, has some issues in in sort of like you know matching the pacing and being a re- replay of the first film, but sort of like uh, being a little sillier. Um, not many. Then I think it's Afterlife, and I think again like if they just sorted out the music and tweaked that finale, like this film would be even further away from Ghostbusters too. They're a bit slightly interchangeable, I would say. Um, and then Ghostbusters, the nineteen eighty four is the original. So that that's my listings. Now, future. Let's talk about the future. Potential for the future. So this film ends with two um, post credit scenes. Uh, one or three sort of like one's a final nod it says you know thank you it says for harold at the end and it's it goes into a, uh, an image of ecto being driven over um the bridge i don't know which bridge it is but a bridge back into new york and you get the original music like that is the best use of the original music in fact that probably should have been the only use of the original music in this film uh, that because that would have been an absolute ball busting little moment if that was the only time you got some of that music from the Elmer bernstein score like that should have been the way it's done um, and so that's great and then it goes into the thing with Scorny Weaver and uh, Bill Murray which is nice, it's a retaking of the thing with the with the cards and the electrocution happy with that, nice little thing you're never going to see Bill Murray again in a Ghostbusters film alright except that, you're never going to see Sigourney Weaver again in a Ghostbusters film, except that move on, alright, done so that's my first prediction for the future who is going to come back? I think you're going to get. We're going to come back, and you're going to have Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson. And here's how it's going to work: they're taking it back because this, the last uh, post-credit scene is Ernie Hudson back in the firehouse. There is a continuity error there, but that's you know because they, th- they think it's turned into a Starbucks. Clearly, isn't. Ernie Hudson appears to have bought it because he's now a rich uh, financial wizard. Um, and so he is going to redo Ecto One. He, but here's what I think is going to happen. They are going to sort of reinstate this thing as a minor thing to try and build these things back up, back in the firehouse, looking at this thing. And I think they're going to have, um, if you've ever seen the extreme Ghostbusters, Ray is going to come in as a bit of a mentor kind of character for this next load of cast, which probably or may include Paul Rudd. We shall see. Um, I think you, if, if they bring back Paul Rudd, you will, now, you will see him in costume you will see him in a flight suit in the next film i think you will have mckenna grace back and i think you will have um finn wolfhart back will celeste uh o'connor be back i don't know may replace her with someone else but we'll she'll see but i don't i think you'll get at least a, a smidge of the, this cast but then you are going to get a a wider cast that will make up an adult ghost busting team that will be sort of mentored by Ray and financed by Winston, and so those two will act as a thingy. Now they did show because it shows that they go back to the to the firehouse and it shows you the uh, containment unit and the red lights flashing. So there is an issue to be resolved. Don't know what it is, but let's go find out. But I honestly think I I hope this film gets a sequel. I think it will be back in New York, which is good. Um, or if they were to do it between New York and um. Somerville, I think that would be quite cool. You've now got two locations, you know, that, that sort of become important to law. Um, but let's see how that plays out. But that's what I think is going to happen. You're going to get a new roster where you're going to have, say, maybe three new adult characters to make up the uh, um, the four, with Paul Rudd, as the four adult Ghostbusters. You will then get support from McKenna Grace, Finn Wolfhart, 
possibly Celeste O'Connor, and they'll be mentored by Ray and uh, um, Winston. That's my thinking. That's what I'm hoping. It'll be interesting. Let's see what comes of it. Go, you know, there's already talks of an animated film. Has been talking about. I've been wanting an animated film for forever. More, more comics. Like, if you're not going to give me a novelization of this film, give me a bloody comic adaptation. That's what I want to see. Um, yeah, I think there's so much more potential from this franchise. Like, I absolutely love this film. It really gave me all the feels. Yes, it had problems. You know, I'm like, I do lots of nag on about things. But I legit, legit love this film. You know, there's little moments in this film. Like, some of the, one of the ones, uh, Max uh, from the show, Max points out, and I, I spotted it. They've got the bog-eyed ghost from the uh, Kenner toys turned into a ghost in this film. That's awesome. Love that. Uh, so, yes, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen it uh, and you've just listened to all that, um, I hope you go see it. You know, go support it. You now know pretty much everything that happens. Um, but still, it's a, it's a good film. I've really enjoyed it. But they're my thoughts. There you go. Sort of 40 odd minutes of my thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have got one um, last uh, episode to go out for the Ghostbusters. Um, and that is going to be in the next episode. It'll be me talking with uh, Channeling Spirits from uh, Devin from Channeling Spirits uh, on YouTube. Um, in the next episode, talking about cosplay and other bits and pieces, he'll be the last stand for this uh, Ghostbusters run. So I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been fantastic doing this. I've really enjoyed talking on Ghostbusters for a month, uh, and we may come back here again talk specifically about real Ghostbusters. Now, what else are we doing? Is anything else? Well, we do of course appreciate everybody's support. If you're listening, we just love you. We love all of our listeners. Thank you very much for being here. I say we. It's me. I am the 20th century geek. I love you. Uh, but we need some help keeping the lights on in 20th Century Towers, and we love all your support. So, look at your device. You'll probably listen. You, you could be listening to this on a phone, I expect most people are, or a laptop. But go to your podcast catching, you know, platform, whatever it is, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, whatever it is, Audible. Uh, go on there, leave a review. Really appreciate it. I tell you what, if anyone, um, I'm going to do this for Christmas actually. But if you can show me a picture, all right, tweet me a picture of your review, you'll get a shout out on the show. And then in December, I will pick the best one and we'll start sending out some gifts. I think that sounds like a fair thing to do. So tweet me. And that's, that's at 20th Century Geek on Twitter. Find me and send me a picture of, the, of you reviewing this podcast on the platform with uh, hashtag uh, review. Uh, and then let me know which platform you're reviewing it on. So, other things, ladies and gentlemen, if you really like what we're doing as well, don't forget, we do have a Patreon. Uh, we have a Patreon, it's www.patreon.com slash 20CG Media. That's 20th Century Geek Media, that's our wider uh, big brother. And on that, we have a weekly podcast where uh, myself and uh, uh, Julian Darius from Stories at Time and Space talk about the trekking through the Twilight Zone. Every week, we trek through the Twilight Zone. Uh, and then every month I do 30 minutes uh, thoughts, uh, different bits and pieces. Every month we, we, we do a poll and we talk about, I talk about something for 30 minutes. And then every quarter we then have a guest on to do Creator's Corner, something very creative. And this month, sneaky, sneaky, I may have uh, some Ghostbusters related guest on. So that's the hope. I'm working on it. I'm not to say who it is. I'll be prom promoting that soon. But anyway, go check it out. There's a link below. Go check out our podcast. Uh, podcast patreon anyway ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening 
and uh, I shall see you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.